Hello everyone, we hope you're having a great day. My name is Bobby Katagola, and I am joined by my co-host and friend, Parsha Kasuri. Welcome back to our podcast, Growth Spurt, the best podcast you'll find on the internet about everything and anything, from public policy all the way to cellular physiology. So Harsha, who do we have on today's episode? Well, today we have the privilege of talking to Dr. Pallav Kasuri, who is an assistant professor at the Salk Institute. Dr. Kasuri's research is really fascinating. Him and his team of researchers use cutting-edge DNA technology to understand molecular processes as well as apply them to issues such as heart disease. Dr. Kasuri, it's great to have you here. Thank you for speaking with us. Yeah, <laughs> that's cool. So there's actually a fun fact. Um, when I, so I did my PhD in New York and then, well, so I, okay, just backstory. I grew up in Sweden, uh, went to college in Sweden, and then I came to New York for my, my graduate school um, for PhD. And then I was applying for postdocs and, um, and I found that there was another Kasuri. Like I, I was interested in doing postdoc at, at this lab at Harvard. And mm-hmm. there was another, I, I found another Kasuri who was a postdoc in a lab at Harvard. And uh, <laughs> for some reason, I was like, I should just tell him that I'm a Kasuri and that I'm in, the, like, you know, I'm, in, I'm, I want to go to Harvard. And I emailed him, and I was like, How do I introduce myself? I was like, Hi, Doctor Kasuri. My name is also Kasuri. <laughs> you want to talk to me? And he was super nice about it. And his name is Shriram Kasuri, and he's actually an excellent scientist. He um, uh, he, yeah, he, he did his postdoc in a, in a very similar field to me uh, in, in DNA nanotechnology, not so much structural. I do more like structural nanotechnology. He did more like sequencing based technologies and mm-hmm. DNA synthesis. And then he started his own lab and he called that lab the Kasuri lab. Um, and I saw this, I also saw that he's, he, so when he started his lab, it was several years before I started my lab. So he registered kasurilab.org. And immediately I was like, oh, I hope he doesn't register kasurilab.com. So I registered kasurilab.com, I think like five years ago or six years ago, like way before I was applying for faculty positions and before I even had a lab. And I thought to myself, maybe I'm just like, you know, full of myself that I, I think at some point I will have a lab, even though I'm, I'm postdoc still. And then when I finally started my lab, I went live with the web page and the other kasuri tweeted at me and he was like oh man i should have taken that domain because now there's a kasurilab.com and a kasurilab.org and we're to- totally different scientists but you know anyway yeah that's a, that's a kasuri story <laughs> so kasuris have a good reputation there are a few of us but we're very good i mean i don't know about myself but he's very good you're a c you seem great. yeah thank you yeah my last name's super like unique like not a lot of people have this last name so how do you it's... how do you pronounce it uh teddy gotla Teddy Gottlieb. Oh, yeah. Cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think if you're okay with it, could we take like a quick picture with you just for our Instagram? Sure. Yeah, All of right. course. All right. Awesome. All right. Thank you so much. No worries. Um, okay. But if you guys are ready, we can go ahead and get started. So yeah. what's, can, you, can you give me a bit of background? So what's your, so you're in Texas? Is that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So we're both high school seniors in Texas. Cool. Um, so I go to the Texas Academy of Math and Science in uh, Denton, Texas. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah, I think I go to Plano Senior High School in Plano, Texas. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm, I've got to look up on Google Maps where Plano is located. I'm so ignorant. 
Right it's now. like a suburb around Dallas. Oh, okay, cool. I might have been in the area. Mm -hmm. um, oh, I see, I see. Okay, so it's like in, in the metropolitan area of Dallas. Yeah. 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 Awesome, okay. All right, and so you're, Harsha, are you also a, a senior? Yeah. Okay, you have, you have plans, or like rising seniors, I suppose? Yeah. Yeah, rising seniors. So you're applying for college? Yep. <laughs> Presumably. Awesome. Yeah, we're both pretty interested in neuroscience. So um, like Rice University is one school that we're looking at because they have a pretty good neuroscience program. Um, also some of the UC schools because their pre-med tracks are um, like, they're really good. So yeah. we're just looking at schools right now. But UC San Diego has a very strong neuroscience mm -hmm. uh, yeah. department. I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a hobby neuroscientist. I've, I've published <laughs> some papers on neuroscience, but it, um, it's not my primary field of interest, but I think mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's a very fascinating area of research and it's yeah it's, yeah dr dj was really nice to um he offered us a like a remote research position in his lab oh cool um, so yeah. yeah we're really excited to start working with him dj is awesome like yeah, if you work really with him cool. i would highly recommend it he's i think he's both a good scientist and a good mentor so mm -hmm. yeah yeah uh how did you get in contact with dj oh we just started sending out emails we just emailed him yeah <laughs> specifically targeted the people with indian names <laughs> i feel singled out i'm honored also that's cool all right yeah. yeah so we have so how much do you know about the salt institute um not too much like if i'm being honest i haven't really heard too much about it before but i do know that it's like really like they have like really cutting edge research right now <laughs> yeah, we'd like to think so. Yeah, I am. Um, I can give you a bit of background if you're interested. Like yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah, so Salk Institute was founded by Jonas Salk. So Jonas Salk um, discovered or invented, if you will, the first effective vaccine against polio. Wow. And so that was really big because up until the 50s, there were millions of people worldwide that were suffering from polio and it predominantly affected children and it caused severe paralysis. I mean, I still have relatives alive today who are um, suffered polio as, as kids in, in India, and um, and it, it can be really terrible. And, and, and it was an epidemic around the whole world up until the 50s. And until then, people were convinced that there was there was no treatment and that there, it was impossible to vaccinate against it because the way that people had been developing vaccines up until then did not work with the polio virus. And um, so, so this guy, Jonas Salk, he came from very humble beginnings and he was um, he just didn't listen to his professors. And so he, he, he thought, well, you know, he had an idea for how you could make a vaccine and everyone just told him that it's not gonna work, but it, because that wasn't the conventional wisdom in the field. Uh, and despite that, he somehow managed to, he got an MD and he's, he got this small lab in, in Pittsburgh um, and he, he just kept doing uh, research on his own to try to make this vaccine. And um, it turned out that it worked and he managed to pretty much, you know, single-handedly cure polio. It's not a disease that exists in any appreciable extent anymore. So, you know, he's responsible for saving millions and millions of lives and, and decreasing the suffering across the world. And as you can imagine, this invention is worth, you know, even in, in that time would have been worth billions of dollars of money if you patented it and licensed it. But he decided not to do that because he, he basically said, you know, would you patent the sun? This is something everyone needs. Like this should be free. So he gave this away and he saved the world. And it was huge at the time. 
And, um, and so many people were interested in, in helping him promote his way of doing science, which was very countercultural at the time. And so he decided to build a research institute that would be dedicated to um, the visionary ideas of scientists that were thinking outside the box. And that was kind of the initial, um, the, the initial intention for the institute. And then the mayor of San Diego, uh, who himself at the time in the 50s, he, he had suffered polio as a child and was partially paralyzed. He was very sympathetic to this cause. And so he offered this piece of land um, on, the, on the cliff above the ocean here in San Diego um, for, for Jonas Salk to build this institute, basically offer the land for free. And so, so this is where they started the institute. It's a small place where about 48 labs, and it's been for, uh, small for the, entire, uh, for the entire history. And the PIs, the professors who work here, uh, are all from different disciplines. We have neuroscientists, we have uh, cancer biologists, we have, like myself, biophysicists, so people who study more physical aspects of biology. And we have theoretical people, computational people, like people from all different fields. But what we share is this like idea that we can do science a little bit differently from, from what the, the common um, you know, world of science is doing. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so it's, for me, it's just been a, I, I started in January. I, I, as I said before, I, I did my postdoctoral fellowship at, at Harvard and I applied for jobs around the world. And Salk really stood out as like this place where it's, people just like have this, this glow in their eyes and this passion for something that they really believe in. Uh, and it's really cool to be part of that community. And, and one of the benefits is that we can recruit people from all different disciplines and, and we work together to, yeah, towards these great ideas. Happy to tell you more about those in, in later conversations. So yeah, that's, all, that's the Salk Institute. So we also affiliated like with UC San Diego. So oh. every professor at Salk has a dual appointment as a professor at UC San Diego. Um, but it's it's a little bit different. We're since we're part of this private institute, we we're, we don't have to teach at the university. We can if we want to, but um, but it's more optional. Whereas if you're a professor at at UC San Diego proper, you would typically um, have pretty big part of your time dedicated to teaching and developing courses. Yeah. So this is more focused on research. Okay. That yeah, that's really interesting. So if you don't mind, can you tell us specifically about the research that you are conducting at this moment? Sure. Yeah. So, so my, my background is in physics. I, um, I, as I said, I grew up in Sweden and uh, I majored in physics in college, engineering physics specifically. The reason I was kind of a childhood dream to work with particle accelerators and, and be at the, sort of the forefront of the development of new physics. I thought that was really science fictiony and cool. And, uh, and, and then as my thesis work uh, for my undergraduate thesis, I, I worked at, at a particle accelerator at CERN in Switzerland. And, and I was part of this like big physics experiment. And, um, and I had this realization, uh, we were 6,000 physicists working on one project to find one particle. <laughs> and I just realized that like, you know, I don't really want to dedicate my life to this really esoteric goal that very few people care about and that you're you're a small cog in a big machine i want to be able to to come up with my own original ideas and then make them happen in the lab on a daily basis the kind of experiments that physicists were able to do 100 years ago when you know the first um, person to measure the, the speed of light did it on a tabletop the first person to measure the charge of an electron did that on a, like an optical table that was the size of this table right 
these are these were those were the kinds of experiments that inspired me that pushed the field forward and single scientists could have a vision and then make it come true but i felt like my field of physics at the time had gone to a point where there were these huge organizations that were funded by the government and they had like 20 year goals and you could buy into a small part of it but it was very difficult to have um, make a change and so um so i what i realized was Biology is really the field that I need to be working in. The, the revolution we're seeing in biology now with the genome technology and the development of new therapeutics and gene editing and, you know, that all of this is contributing to a revolution in science that is probably bigger than the, the revolution in physics that happened in the 20th century. But it's happening before our eyes. It's like unraveling now. And I wanted to be part of that. So I switched fields and I applied for PhD programs in biochemistry and biophysics. And I did um, a PhD in biophysics at Columbia University, where I tried to like put my physics skills to use and to some degree be useful in, in the field of biology. It actually turns out that there's a lot you can do as a physicist. So if you have this idea of reductionality, meaning that you look at a really complicated system and you think about, well, are there ways, are there like simple principles that we can find in the systems? Or are there simple ways that we can think about the systems that can allow us to be more predictive in how we study them? So for instance, one way of finding a, a, a cure to a disease is to just like try a bunch of stuff, right? And this is this is how we've found most drugs. To be honest, this is like a very successful technique. We basically feed mice with all sorts of drugs and then we see what works, right? And then eventually we do that in patients too. But presumably we would test it on, on animals first to minimize um, harm to people. Um, and then even before that, we can we can test drug candidates on model systems like cells or or even proteins, enzymes, and so forth. But that's that's like a brute force approach where you just like throw things on a table and you see what sticks. And so there's an alternative way to go about this where we try to understand the system. So we try to understand how the body works. We try to understand how the cells work. And then based on that understanding, we can make predictions for how we can best address problems that exist. And that's what my research is doing. We're trying to create simple physical models of biological systems that will allow us to predict how they work and how to manipulate them. And so the two systems that we're working on in the lab now are one muscles muscles are very attractive systems to model with a physical approach because they're very physical in nature right things that your muscles do is mechanical like primarily we're focusing on the heart your heart is a mechanical organ its function is purely mechanical and if you have a heart disease it's because the mechanics aren't working so it would make sense to try to model this as a mechanism that is you know uh you know functioning through forces and 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 um, and tension and pressure and you know these physical principles um and and then the other system that i'm working on in the lab is molecular motors these are these are molecules biomolecules that work as as small actuators or, or motors within your your body they could either be enzymes that replicate your dna and move along the dna they could be gene editing enzymes the ones that unpeel your DNA and check for a certain sequence. And if it finds the sequence, it will cut the DNA. These are all mechanical interactions. Or it could be the proteins in your muscles that cause the muscles to contract. Those are also motor proteins. So all of these different motor proteins, they're using physical abilities to do something biological. And I'm trying to understand how those motors work and how we can manipulate them and control them. And to do that, we develop methods. So the most, uh, the most important uh activity that we do in the lab is to to try to be creative and think of how can we see what these motors are doing or how can we see how this muscle is built up and how it functions 
Uh, and so that's where we're, we're doing our, like, our day-to-day -day work is to just like sit in the lab, try to think of really cool ideas for how to see these things that have never been seen before, and then build a microscope that can see those specific things. Uh, yeah, so we have a bunch of technologies that we've invented. And, um, and then, yeah, our goal is to, to, in the spirit of Jonas Salt, be open and, and share our science and distribute it and help other labs do this kind of research and potentially lead um, to better diagnostics of cardiac disease and muscular disorders, or even any genetic disorders that involve motor proteins. Yeah, I think that's really cool that there's like such a systemic approach or not systematic approach rather um, to solving such complicated problems and like systems. Um, but I think for a lot of high schoolers, uh, like a lot of us are pretty passionate and interested in conducting research. But I think like a really big problem that a lot of us face is trying to understand really complicated and complex science. So what are your tips um, or like any advice that you have to people that are like struggle with reading really complex literature? Hmm. Yeah, it's a really good question. It's something that I wrestled with a lot. I mean, as you can imagine, so I, I had a background in physics and then all of a sudden I was like in a biology lab and everyone was using terms and jargon that I, I you know, biology is hard because the entry barriers is very high. You have to under, have a rich vocabulary before you can even participate in the conversation or read the articles. And I, I think this is what you're talking about is it's a problem that we need to address on a on a national or on a global scale, really. One thing, okay, so I can give you my best tips for like what to do right now. And then I can also tell you about some things that I would like to do in the future. So right now, Wikipedia and Khan Academy are like invaluable. Like I use them all yeah. the time. I'm a professor and I, I am so thankful that the people of Khan Academy have made these lessons freely available because it, it decreases that barrier and it allows me to understand more complex um, scenarios. And so really that if you can find an online course or a YouTube you know, lecture or something on a topic that, it, that seems more very difficult to understand, that is a good entryway into starting to understand some of the more complex literature. The second thing I would uh, recommend is um, talk to people. So oftentimes you can spend hours and hours trying to figure something out and try to find you know, someone who has asked a similar question online um, or you can just talk to someone who knows the field and, and just like prod them until they give you a clear answer. And um, yeah, so for that, I mean, I can play my role in helping with, with um, supplying answers. So for instance, like if anyone of your listeners have questions or if any, either of you two have questions, feel free to ask me. I'm sure DJ would be open to answer any questions too. And if we don't have the bandwidth, if we get a lot of questions and you know we have a limited time available, we work around the clock right now, um, then we are happy to, to point you to other people who, who have expertise. Like there are lots of students in my lab who are working in this field and, and we're doing a lot of outreach too. So the students in my lab, one of them has a podcast that where she talks about uh, her research journey and, and she would be super happy to, to just like field questions and give people a quick introduction to, to different parts of the science. So just talk to scientists. If they don't give you a good answer, ask more or ask more scientists we need more connection between more senior scientists and high school students and people who are just entering the area. Uh, yeah, and I would love to help out with that if, if, um, if there's any way I can do that. Yeah, going off of that question, I feel like mentors in like this field are super important because like reading a textbook and not understanding that base material, you can read it hundreds of times and you'll still be at step one. And being able to talk to someone who has that has been through that process and understands that material and can explain it a better way 
would definitely be beneficial. What do you think is a good way for people our age to re- to find mentors in the field that they want to go into? Yeah. So, build their like scientific network. Yeah. I, so if you look at like the structure of academia, so there are a lot of high school, like everyone goes, well, not everyone, most people go to high school, right? Yeah. And most, many people go to college, fewer people get a PhD, even fewer people do a postdoc, and very few people are faculty members or professors or run lab. Mm-hmm. So if you expect like the, the tiny, 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 tiny amount of people who are running labs to, um, to be mentors to you know, the people at the base of this, uh, um, of this structure, then we will be stretched too thin. We wouldn't be able to personally mentor uh, every, every high school student that we would want to, or, gra- or college student or grad student for that matter. Um, but what I think we can do is that as a PI, I mean, I have the capacity to mentor maybe a dozen people or so, like in a personal way. And that's what I would like to do. Uh, and then if I can make resources available to wider public, I would love to do that as well. But on a person, like on a one-to-one level, which is, I agree with you, this is the most important form of mentoring, is, is not to have online materials, but to actually have a person you can talk to. For that to work, we need to engage all, this, all the stages of, of, of our career. So, so there are people who uh, are, are college students who know a lot about research, who can be great mentors to undergrad or to high school students. And there are graduate students that could mentor um, college students and high school students. And there are postdocs that could do that. So as a lab manager and as a person who is running a lab, I'm happy to make, uh, you know, um, I shouldn't say that I, should, I will offer the time of my students, but I will, I will be happy to, to um, create more of a network where graduate students and postdocs and college students could, could help mentor pe- younger people who are looking to get into the field. And I really think that's the key here is to, to have a personal connection with someone who is a little bit ahead of you in the career trajectory. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess this is a bit more of like a personal question, but how is growing up in Sweden, like how are like the education opportunities are? Because I know personally for me, um, I went to middle school in India and so I spent three years over there. So I found it really fascinating just with like how education is different over there than it is here in America. Um, at least when it came to like science opportunities, there weren't that many. And so that's sort of where I found like like a lot of value and sort of like the science fair, like the research opportunities that we have here. And so I'd love to hear your experience back in Sweden. Yeah, it's actually, I, I think it's similar. I mean, it's definitely not similar to the Indian system, mm-hmm. but it's similar in the way that there were very limited opportunities for yeah. uh, learning about research and what a researcher does, you know? I can, so no one in my immediate family is in scientific research. and. I didn't have, until I went to grad school, I didn't have a good impression of what one did as a scientist. So it made it really difficult to know whether or not that's something I wanted to do. I didn't have any role models in that, in that field. And, um, and for me, it was more, uh, you know, I read like science, science, uh, like popular science uh, magazines and, and like, I guess, blogs and things, right? And, um, and, and that made me interested. I, I just like lasers, you know, like things like that. I had no idea if I would like doing research in optics, but I knew that I thought lasers were cool. So that's what made me focus on physics. And I was like, how do these things work? That's so cool. You know, somebody invented a laser and now it's like everywhere, you know? Um, fun fact, I, so one of the people I worked with uh, trained with a guy who invented the laser. 
Um, the acronym LASER stands for uh, Light Amplification by Stimulated Emission of Radiation. And all his colleagues initially told him to, to name it the LUCER or Light Optical <laughs> Amplification of Stimulated Emission of Radiation because nobody knew what it was going to be good for. They were all like, okay, so you invented a thing that shoots light straight. Great. That's a great flashlight. It doesn't, it illuminates a small thing. And, um, and then now it's like, you know, obviously super useful for so many different fields. Mm -hmm. But, um, but initially somebody was just curious and that's what, what led to it. And so for me, I was fortunate that my curiosity combined with my privileged background growing up in Sweden, where we had a good educational system allowed me to do research eventually. So my, my first experience with research was as a, um, when I did my undergraduate thesis. Um, and I did a, a, an internship in, uh, at this particle accelerator. But then um, it, it wasn't until I went to grad school that I really understood what it meant to be a, a scientist. And that was really quite honestly, a, a, you know, a bit of luck. I, 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 can't, I can't say that it was an educated decision in retrospect. It was, it was more like, you know, grad school in the US sounds like it, it might be really interesting, mm -hmm. but not, I don't know what I'm getting into. And so I applied to graduate school. I got a, I got a scholarship, a Fulbright, Fulbright scholarship that helped me apply to graduate schools. I got accepted to Columbia University among other universities. And I thought to myself, you know, maybe I won't like grad school, but at least I'll be in New York City. So it shouldn't be that bad, right? And then I ended up loving it. I thought it was super cool. Like you get to come up with ideas and then make them happen. You don't have to make money for anyone. Like you're just doing it because you're curious and you get other people on board with this curiosity and this this idea that like maybe what we do could one day benefit humanity. And then many times it does, right? And that I think that's just such a cool thing to be able to do and for, for society to support this kind of activity. And so if you can be part of that small number of people that can be funded to do creative, you know, curiosity-driven research, it's, it's a huge opportunity. And I, I just feel so privileged to be able to do that now. But that was not something I knew existed when I was when I was even your age. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so I, I think I think people do it much better here in the US. I think mm -hmm. it's much more integration into the scientific community and we can do even better. But what I would be really passionate about is to also make this available to the rest of the world. It's like give people in other countries the ability to interact one on one with people who are in research on all levels. Yeah. Um, but yeah, maybe it starts nationally, maybe it even starts locally. Maybe yeah, it starts I mean, that's sort of something that we talk about like on our podcast like we talk about like not everyone has to conduct research that like solves cancer or does something like super big even if there's like a really slow sort of positive effect that comes out of like their creative endeavors um yeah. then people should definitely go after it like yesterday we had dr sonal nalker on our podcast and she's a sociologist from emory university and so she talked about how she initially wanted to go into engineering and then she started studying the science behind dating and now she does research into criminology. And mm -hmm. so she was talking about how it's like really important to find things that you're really passionate about. Um, and it's really important to fund that sort of, that sort of like, sort of like interest and passion because a lot of good things can come out of stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, totally. And it's something we're fighting for a lot within the scientific community mm -hmm. because a lot of funding, as you can imagine, it, it goes to research that where they say they will do a specific thing. Like we will cure this disease in this way. Yeah. Right. You will say like, mm -hmm. oh, we will develop inhibitors of cell growth for cancer cells. And that's how we will cure cancer. And that's great. We should definitely invest in that. <laughs> I mean, it's a no brainer. Right. And also, we should also invest in research that is says, you know, cancer cells do this really strange thing. We don't know what it is, but somehow like 
For instance, you know, cancer cells tend to look like stem cells. That is the cells that you know all of our cells come from. Is this a coincidence? Like, could this be important in some way? We don't know. Like, wait, now we do. But initially, we didn't know. <laughs> and so then we might ask the question, like, you know, why do cancer cells look like stem cells? Mm -hmm. Does that play a role? Could that be important in some way? Maybe could that someday lead to a cure for cancer? Uh, somebody needs to fund that too, right? <laughs> Even yeah. if they don't have a clear plan, we also need to know what these like fundamental characteristics are of biological systems that have no clear path to a cure, but could contribute fundamental knowledge that could then help the entire field understand what's going on, right? So in some cases, it's more easy to make that case than in others. But overall, I just think both in both in 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 the public awareness of like you know regular people on the street if if they think that the only science that is worth doing is the one the kind that has a specific goal in curing a specific disease then we're losing out on a lot of really great science that could help yeah, our sure. design in the future yeah and, and that could lead to like unexpected uh, synergies between fields um you know for instance uh, a lot of the technology that i am using to observe these single molecule movements of molecular motors it's based on technology that comes from astronomy, where people were looking at really faint stars for no good reason at all. Like they just wanted to see what's out in the universe. But thanks to us funding this research, they developed incredibly sensitive cameras and lenses that could capture tiny, tiny amounts of light. And now we can use those cameras and those optics to observe single molecules and literally see this, the galaxies and stars and molecules working in synchrony inside of our cells. Mm -hmm. And that's something that they didn't expect to invent, but now it's benefit it benefits everyone, including cancer scientists. So I, I just, one example is, um, so the part of my lab that is studying uh, molecular movements and molecular motors, we use a technology called DNA origami. And uh, yeah, can you imagine? Do you yeah, know that sounds pretty interesting. I tried reading about it. I tried reading about it before and it was so confusing that <laughs> Yeah, so, so basically, this is, I, I read, when I first read about this, I was a graduate student, and I, I, I was just, I, I was like, okay, I don't know what this is good for, but it sounds so cool, and it just sounds to me like, at some point, we will be able to create something really useful with this technology. The idea is the following. So DNA is this double-stranded helix, right? We've seen it in pictures. It's what exists in every single one of our cells, except for red blood cells. Separate story. <laughs> so... Most cells have DNA, right? Most cells have DNA that is in this double helix format where you, where you have two strands of DNA that are complementary to each other, right? Mm -hmm. So you have, for instance, ATCG, and then on the other strand, you will have the, the, the complement to that, which will be, you know, uh, TAGZ, right? Yeah. So if you have a, a, a single strand of DNA with a sequence and the, another single strand that has the complementary sequence, they would automatically zip up and form a double helix. And that is just how all the DNA is uh, stored in every single cell in, in every single organism that we know. And it has been for 4 billion years. And the way we think of DNA is that it carries the information, the blueprint for how to build cells, organs, people, you know, life. Um, and in the 80s, there was this scientist in New York who had this idea that was way ahead of his time. He thought to himself, okay, DNA looks like a double helix in nature, but does it have to? And, and then he started thinking about this, like, well, can we make it into some other shape? And one idea that he had was, well, let's say you have a strand of DNA here, right? You have a complementary strand of DNA here, but instead of complete complementarity, let's say that this part of the DNA is complementary to this part. Mm 
-hmm. and this part is not complementary to this part, then these two parts will zip up and form a double helix, but then these two parts will still be um, unstructured and not yeah. bound to anything. And now let's imagine that you introduce a third strand of DNA and it's complementary to this part and to this part. That would assemble and form a double helix here and a double helix here. And now you will have this like Y-shaped junction that does not exist in nature. But if you can create DNA with these sequences, it would automatically form into this junction. And then he thought to himself, well, a cube is basically just, if you think of the wireframe of a cube, it's just eight Y-shaped junctions. So if we can design DNA strands with these particular sequences so that they form eight Y-shaped junctions and we mix them together in a tube, they should assemble into cubes. Mm -hmm. And he was like, well, and then the rest of the scientific community was like, okay, first of all, what is this good for? And second, <laughs> second of all, like, show us that it can be done. And it turned out it was really difficult because in the 80s, we couldn't really synthesize DNA very well. Mm -hmm. So it took 10 years or more before he could actually synthesize this. And then when he synthesized it, he had these, like, maybe he had these tiny cubes, but how was he going to see them? They were so small, he couldn't see them. <laughs> so it took another many years before we could take uh, images that just show that this actually worked. And now we know it works. So that was the first structure. But since then, we have come up with many, many different ways to program into DNA specific shapes so that if we can synthesize DNA with these sequences and mix them together in a test tube, they would just automatically assemble into these like beautiful three-dimensional structures of nearly any shape and form. So I came into this field. I read about these pioneering studies that have been done a long time ago, and I was like, OK, fine, we can make cubes, we can make smiley faces, but maybe we can make useful things with them too. We can make like tools. Maybe we can even build miniature labs that, that can be self-assembled into tiny, tiny shapes on a chip that we can then manufacture in huge multiplicity and then um, you know, distribute around the world at a tiny, tiny fraction of the cost of modern like macro scale labs. And that's where we're taking the technology now. So we're building diagnostic devices that are entirely made of DNA. And with these devices, we can detect tiny, tiny amounts of biomarkers, of drugs, of, um, of, of pathogens, of viruses, and, and potentially a, a lot of other things. And these tiny, tiny sensors, they build themselves. We just order the uh, components, and then we combine them, and they self-assemble. So, one thing that we did is we built the world's smallest propeller made of DNA. We made it, wow. we made this like rotor shaped structure and we connected it to a molecular motor that uses ATP, the chemical fuel in our bodies to generate a rotational motion. And then we made these like tiny helicopters that, you know, they look cool. Turns out that we could also use them to, to study how this rotational movement happens and how fast it is and so forth. But now we're thinking of, of things we can use them for. Maybe we can actually use them as propellers to give, um, to move things around on the nanoscale and to, to create devices that can maybe swim through our veins and, and deliver drugs to places where they need to be delivered. Maybe you can run these propellers in reverse as generators to generate power or electricity. And that could be used instead of, you think of a, a hydroelectric power plant that has a giant turbine or a wind turbine that you know has this huge propeller. Imagine that you have billions and billions of self-assembled propellers that are the size of individual molecules, but collectively they can generate the same amount of power. That will be incredibly powerful and useful for the community. And, and, and now you can think even further ahead that these are DNA, so you can potentially make them self-replicating, which means that it will be no, like you only have to make a few of them and then they would just make themselves. And we need some way to prevent them from replicating, you know, um, 
without hindrance, but but that's something we, we that's something we can we can take care of separately. So at the end of the day, it's a it's a technology that enables our minds to to sort of go free with creativity and think of all the ways that we can change society if you now have this new technology. And that's mm -hmm. what I really love about DNA origami. So like this is the starting point for a new field of science. And and as a professor, like you get to think about these kind of things and then hire people to make it happen, which is just such a cool place to be. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. I mean, like, I think it'd be kind of cool if like people start making like artwork or something like that, a DNA, and then you have like celebrities buying like like pictures or whatever for like millions of dollars or something like that. Yeah, you can start to fund more research, right? <laughs> exactly, yeah. Yeah, one of the applications is, um, so like microchips that you use for computers have, have mm -hmm. circuits that are tiny, tiny, right? They're really small. And at, at this point, like we're running into problems where we can't make them any smaller because the ways that we, we build them uses technology that can only go so small. And mm -hmm. so we're trying to use, or not we aren't, but some of our collaborators are trying to use DNA to, to build like patterns on a surface that helps guide where the transistors go on a microchip. And then we can assemble with an atomic precision exactly where the circuits are. So this can be used to make even better computers, which is like something we totally didn't expect. But because we were curious about DNA origami, the idea of folding DNA into weird shapes, we now have a way to build better computers. I mean, that's just like, I think it's super cool. <laughs> mm -hmm. Sure, art is another form. Uh, I, I would love to do more on the art side of things. This would be more of a hobby project, but uh, you, you can think of like, you could even take the DNA of a specific person, right? And then make a personalized artwork that can only be made with the, with the DNA of a person. Mm, yeah. So you can make like, you know, the, the Bavik uh, uh, structure. <laughs> like my face or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe, yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, it, it could be something that's like very personalized. Um, mm -hmm. But I, most of the DNA we use is, is synthetic. It's just like something we, we, we synthesize from, from the individual nucleotides, from the ATCG um, basis of DNA. And, and we make it in a, in a factory, essentially. Mm -hmm. It's crazy. Nowadays, you could like, if you, if you know the sequence you want, you could just like order it online and it shows up in a, in a powder form the next day. And mm -hmm. uh, it, it costs a few dollars. Like you don't need to be rich to, to make these DNA structures. Wow. It's actually pretty cool. It's hard to like wrap my mind even around what was happening in those last couple of minutes. Cause it's like the, the DNA that like we're used to is very textbook definition. We haven't been introduced to that. So going from like textbook, like DNA, like, and then going all the way to being able to create DNA propellers is really interesting for me, at least. So yeah. The last question we wanted to ask is, what would be one piece of advice you'd give to someone who wanted to enter into this field? Hmm. I have so much <laughs> to say. <on> <laughs> um, I would say that, okay, one of the things that I've noticed a lot and I think is, is very important to consider is that um, it takes time like anything and it, it's it's like easy to forget when you know in a world of TikTok where you can see people do great things at the swipe of your finger um those things that are, people are do, doing that are really great like even if it's a TikTok dance or if it's a you know scientific publication they usually took years of practice and hard work to get to and so you can look at these glitzy results you can look at you know dna propellers and you can say wow that's super cool like i'm gonna do that and then in, in reality, just like anything else, like it's hard, right? It takes, it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of dedication. 
I will say this, pretty much anyone can do it. You don't need to be born with some scientist brain or some specific skill. For myself, I've always thought of myself as a really slow person who is really bad at calculating things. <laughs> I can do things, it just takes time, you know? Mm -hmm. So I did really poorly on tests that were timed because I was just slow. I, and, and I thought it was because I was stupid. And maybe I am. And I also managed to do okay in science. And I think that's what I've seen is that the most successful scientists, the people that do the most imaginative and crazy things and are the most wildly successful, some of them are what we would refer to as like special, talented, whatever, you know, and we like to idolize that. But that's a small fraction. The vast majority of incredible people, and this includes Nobel Prize winners and people who invented, Jonas Salk, for instance, who's a brilliant man who, who, who invented the vaccine to polio, were just regular people who happen to have a dedication and a passion for science, and they work really hard and try to be as good as they could be. Mm -hmm. And if you can do that, and if you dedicate yourself to something, then you will go farther than 99% and you will get that 1% opportunity that will allow you to, to make your dreams come true. And obviously you need privilege, obviously you need luck and you don't need, you, you're helped by privilege, you're, you're helped by luck. And, uh, and I truly believe that, that if, you, if, if you feel dedicated and passionate about something and you stay at it, you actually have a pretty good chance of getting to do what you want to do eventually. And, and it's, it's people like you who, who create these opportunities for, for high school students and for, for people who don't grow up in areas that where you're surrounded by research. Although Dallas, I gotta say, like there's plenty of great research in Dallas. So mm -hmm. yeah. you're, not, you're not that far removed. But, but it, it, it's, it's thanks to podcasts like yours that, that, that you help people understand that if they just talk to scientists, if they just reach out and, and are adamant about like learning about these fields, and they put in hard work and dedication and they show that they're they're, they're passionate about something then then they they will have the ability to contribute in a meaningful way to to science and to do these crazy things yeah thank you so much i mean like that's really relatable and also like some really great advice because i feel like for a lot of us um like we're interested in specific things but it's sort of like you need that push to i guess like go out there and like sort of like take that leap of faith to really pursue your passions and so i think it's really important to realize that um, I guess just research in general, or just like any interest that you have, uh, like pursue it, even if you have some amount of interest, it's always um, a good idea just to like go out there and try stuff. Uh, but yeah, thank you so much, Dr. Chris Suri. Um, we really appreciate, appreciate you talking to us. And yeah, if you guys enjoy this episode, don't forget to follow us on Instagram, comment on our posts and share this podcast with your friends. And we'll see you guys again next week. Bye. Thank you. Okay, but yeah, thank, thank you. you so much, Dr. Kosuri. We really like enjoyed having this conversation with you. Yeah, no, this is this was fun. I'm I'm hope I hope I, I mean, I do a lot of strange things, and I hope I can shed some light. I'm also happy to answer more specific questions, or if you want to see. I mean, yeah, yeah, it's it's a lot of it is quite complicated, but mm -hmm. the principles are simple. Like we want to yeah. see how things move. We want to see how things look, and. Um, and I, I have the privilege of working with great people and, and they make the magic happen. So, yeah. Yeah, but also, um, are you, yeah. So are you both doing this like internship thing with, with DJ's lab? Uh, yeah, so yeah. we just started. Um, so right now we're just reading papers and trying to like get familiar with the field. 
uh but yeah D dr dj was kind enough to to let us work with him and his team but yeah well are, are you do you know what what part of the research you're going to be working on so we um, were colleagues at harvard that's how we know each oh, other okay. when we came here uh, so he he's studying, as you know, he's studying neuroscience and mm -hmm. organization and the networking in the in the in the brain, right? Yeah. And um, and one of the methods he's using is called Murfish, which is this technology that allows you to see the expression of different genes in different cells in tissue. And and that's part of what my lab is doing. It's like we're we're helping develop and and use this method to to take images of, for instance, brain tissue, where you can see where each cell is located and what the gene expression is of each cell in the tissue. So you can you can use that to create a map of all of the cells and what they're doing, essentially. Uh, and that can help you understand how they're wired and what the functions are on the different parts of the brain. So uh, I might even collaborate with DJ on, on some of these projects, but I, I can tell that there's there's going to be some overlap between what our labs are doing. So mm -hmm. yeah, I might, I might come across you in the, in the future too. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. That'd be awesome. Yeah, I think right now, um, sort of I, I think like the thing that we have is just like analysis of sort of like the experiments that they're going to be conducting the lab because we we live so far away um hopefully we get to go to san diego sometime soon um to start conducting some type of experiment yeah, if you do you should let me know and I, i'm happy yeah, to for sure, around for sure. yeah yeah it would um, be really cool i i i i recognize i mean to be fair and you you are just as valuable if not more valuable than the people that are in the lab because so much of our work these days is computational and, mm -hmm. and and analysis of these like really complicated data sets that we get from our experiments and so we, we can never have too many people um, help with the analysis i think you're you can add a lot of value to the research thank you yeah I, my advice would be like try to get in on those like scientific conversations to see like where he's trying to because what i think is really useful in the long run is not just to do the the work but mm -hmm. to to understand how the scientists behind the work, like the ones who came up with the experiments to begin with, how do they come up with ideas? How do they how do they choose which experiments to do, and how do they choose which like questions to ask and to pursue? And DJ yeah. is brilliant. He's very good at um, at both coming up with really interesting ideas, but also at communicating exactly why mm -hmm. he's interested in those things. So I would try to be part of those discussions to see like how he decides where to do research and what to do. That's mm -hmm. That's something uh, I think we can all learn from. Yeah, I've had some amount of prior research experience and like just from a conversation with Dr. DJ, like he's just like so kind and open to like <laughs> talking about things that he's interested in. And like we we thought that was really cool. And so yeah. that's sort of why we reached out to him about yeah. like conducting research with him. But yeah, yeah what, another thing that I love about science and especially like this area of science. I mean, DJ is mm -hmm. part of it, but also like the SALT community and, and UCSD is pretty much any like when you talk to professors, uh, I don't know if you've noticed this over, but like if you get them to talk about their area of research, their eyes will like light up and they will be yeah. so excited about this thing, which is like, to be, to be fair, it's really rare to meet someone who's been working on something for like their entire life and they're still so excited about it. I think there's something special about that. And, and that's what makes, uh, to me, that's like what makes science a really cool field to work in. Mm -hmm. that, that everyone that I know that is in like my stage of their career are so passionate about this thing and they just like, love talking about it. It's cool to be in that environment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Like I did an early entrance college program right now. So um, I'm technically enrolled in the University of North Texas. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of professors over there that have been conducting research for like 30, 35 plus years. And so just like sitting in one of those classrooms and just like listening to stuff that they're really passionate about, like 
sometimes you won't really understand what they're saying, but it's just really cool to sort of, I guess, like, um, just like witness that, if that makes well, sense. Well, uh, I, I would tell you this. If, if you don't understand what they're saying, it's not because you don't get it. It's because they're bad at explaining. That's <laughs> yeah, always yes. been my, my approach is like, if the people I talk to don't understand what I'm saying, it's on mm -hmm. me. Like, I, I, I'm not explaining it well. Because if you're good at it, like, if you really try, you should be able to explain anything to anyone. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You just need to change your language. Uh, mm -hmm. Use less jargon and start from more basic principles. Yeah. Not... I thought that was really cool with, like, how you explain your research. Like, it made so much sense. Like, I guess sort of like when you first hear DNA origami, it's sort of like intimidating, sort of like complex. <laughs> yeah. But I think, like, in its ba like basically, like, it's pretty straightforward, I guess. It's, it's simple principles, but then mm -hmm. uh, going from this, so the, this like Y-shaped junction was one form and then they made like an X-shaped junction where each strand went like this and like this and then mm -hmm. like this and like this, right? Yeah. And, and then from those things, from those like simple elements, they could piece together larger structures and build it like Legos. So each, each like component has one certain structure. You can build those on top of each other. And now we're trying to develop softwares that allow you to like draw a shape and then the software will tell you what kinds of DNA you need to order or synthesize in order to build this shape. But that turns out to be a really difficult problem to solve too, because it's a computational challenge to go from a shape to the actual sequences. But it can be done if you build off of these simple building blocks. Uh, and so what we want to do is to make DNA origami more accessible by creating these software tools that allow basically anyone who can like draw things on a computer to, to have the ability to, to then order and, and assemble these like the assembly is super simple. You literally just combine things in a tube, you heat it up, and then you pull it down. And you need to heat it up because you need everything to like come apart yeah. and melt. And then you slowly cool it down, and then they come together in a very systematic way. Uh, and so, so yeah, that's it. That's all there is to it. But the hard part is on the design side, like figuring out exactly what you need to to uh, to synthesize. And that's something that we, as scientists, can can make more accessible to people. So mm -hmm. part of what I want to do is to go exactly from what you're saying, like it's kind of an intimidating concept, like building things out of DNA to just like making it a useful technology and an engineering tool for like the world to use. Actually, our, our propellers that we're making, we can, we can, um, so we can just like remove, evaporate the water and then they're just like a powder of DNA propellers and you can send it by mail at, for <laughs> like a few dollars to any place in the world and they can just like re-dissolve it in water and they have DNA propellers, which <laughs> is so, so kind of cool. So I, I want to do like some teaching labs where we, but then, then you need like, you know, you need to do something with it or, or look at it with some microscope, right? But, mm -hmm. but like the, the structures themselves are very resilient and you can, you can, yeah, you can really send them anywhere. Yeah, I think that's really cool. So are they like crystals or like, it's just like powder? Like, is it just like oh, one big? No, it's um, so it's it's called a precipitate. A mm. precipitate is mm. just like could either be little crystals or or like pow powder is like poorly defined because powder could be like a powder of tiny crystals or it could be a powder of like tiny lumps of something, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, it's it's kind of a mixture. It's it's sort of crystalline, but it's not large crystals. It's just like yeah, it's like salt. It looks like salt, but it's less less structured, I guess. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. But it's not that useful. I mean. Maybe it'll be useful for something else if you can be creative enough to think of it, but it's really mostly useful when you have it in water and it's dissolved because then these things are like actual propellers, you know? Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I mean, one thing that we are looking to, to do is to build 
like larger scaffolds out of these DNA structures. Because if you can build tiny propellers, you can also make them self-assemble into larger structures. Maybe we can use that as the scaffolds to like, for instance, if you need a transplant or you need a replacement tissue, you can build a, uh, potentially build a scaffold that we can custom design using DNA. And then you can, since it's a bio, you know, compatible material, it, your body will just sort of like integrate it and then slowly digest it over time. But as it, if you have an, an implant made of DNA origami, it, it might slowly be replaced with like your own tissue. So it can give you your, like your body a scaffold to work on. Or maybe we can make like artificial systems where we can grow organs or something else and we can build those structures, like three-dimensional structures for the organs to grow on using DNA. There are many different things uh, you can use it for. Um, yeah, I mean, I part of what I love about this is like, I feel like we are at the beginning of this like nano revolution where we will miniaturize everything and all of the things that we take for granted that we use for like production, chemical processing, power generation, like all of these things can be miniaturized if we have a way to build things on the nanoscale. Mm -hmm. And um, and I think DNA could be one of the materials that can make that happen. Because it's like, yeah. it's, it's biodegradable, it's safe, you can eat it, it's like slightly sour because it's an acid, <laughs> it's like nucleic acid. But other than that, it's totally harmless. And and yeah, you can like replicate it, right? It's like a template of itself. So, so yeah, I, I think it's, I might be biased, but I, I think it's the future. <laughs> Oh, the thing that is so cool about this is it existed for 4 billion years, but it took this guy in New York to, to just come up with this idea. And now we can use it for other things. Like we don't have for, to wait for nature to come up with things. We can be nature and design yeah. things. Yeah. It's, it's only limited by our brains, which is, which is, this is like such a cool thing to think about that there are so many awesome ideas out there that someone just has to think of. And, uh, and there's nothing stopping us from, from doing it. Yeah, there's like that, like that, um, I guess I've seen it on like Reddit threads and stuff where like people start talking about how like we're now able to like shape our own reality. Or like people yeah. talk about like yeah. you dream cert like certain stuff and like you're like, oh, I wish this is real or whatever. But now we can actually make those things real. Yeah, yeah, cool. yeah. In some, some cases we can, I mean, more and more things, right? We can, we can mm -hmm. shape more and more. One of the things we're doing at Salk, and this is, this is pretty science fiction-y is, you know, climate change is like not a great thing. And because of carbon release, like the, there's there's a change in the global climate that doesn't really benefit anyone, and mm -hmm. plants are dying. We have more natural disasters and so forth, and um, and this is all because of the carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases that are increasing in in the atmosphere, and so there are all these ways that people are trying to limit the emissions, right? Like all of these protocols where we um, we try to like switch to electric cars and we try to, you know, rely less on fossil fuels and, and switch to um, renewable methods and so forth. And, um, but here at Salk, we're doing something uh, completely um, perpendicular, I should say, like something different, but with the same goal. So instead of only limiting our emissions, we're trying to absorb and capture carbon and bring it back to the earth. Uh, and if we can do that, we could reverse climate change and like essentially save the world, right? Uh, the way we're doing it is with the help of plants. So plants capture carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and they, through photosynthesis, they fix it in their, um, they, their roots. So they convert carbon dioxide into like other forms of carbon that is like solid. Mm -hmm. um, and there's this one molecule in particular called suberin. And that molecule contains a lot of carbon atoms. And so you can take many, many carbon dioxide molecules from the air and then create these like chains of suberin. And so if you do that, 
um, which every plant does to some extent, and then, and 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 then they all capture carbon. But then most plants they just like put it in their roots, and then when you harvest the plant or when the plant dies, it just goes back into the atmosphere. But what we're doing here in at Salt is we're we're making plants that are better at storing suberin, that create more suberin, capture more carbon dioxide, and grow roots that go deeper and deposit the carbon dioxide further down in the ground. And these plants have the same properties as normal plants. In fact, they are better for the fields because they deposit more carbon in the, in the ground, which means that the ground stays fertile for longer. And the only thing to do in addition is that they capture carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. And we've done some calculations. And if we can get regular crop plants like corn and rice and wheat um, to, and soy, if we can get these plants to to uh, to to have this this new ability, and we get farmers to actually use these plants, then we can reverse all of the man-made carbon emissions that have been happening to date. So this one change in plants could actually save the world, uh, okay. which is to me is like such a visionary idea. There was one of our professors, Joanne Corey, came up with this idea, and and now people are funding this, and we have. You know, big initiatives to try it out in in actual agricultural plants, and if it works, this could actually be the thing that that makes a difference. Like, emissions are only going to limit the additional climate change, but it's not going to reverse it. But this could actually reverse it. So, so this is like again, it's like some professor in this case came up with an idea, and and now it's happening. Like now we're actually trying to do this. Yeah, I mean, pretty cool. Oh, go ahead. Like. Just hearing all of these like potential like world benefiting like solutions and like like you said this is just like the start because this research is still in its early stages I feel like so it's only going to get better and more branches are going to happen it's like exciting to hear about and knowing that I think me and Bobic at least are gonna eventually go into that field and um, hopefully hopefully contribute um, it just like excites me for the future. Yeah, I mean, the things that you hear about from scientists today are the things you're going to be reading about like 10 years from now, probably. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's the idea. Well, you know, the things that work. Some things don't work, but if you don't have any ideas, then nothing will work. Right? Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I think sort of like the research that you were talking about, um, there were a couple other papers that I was reading. I'm pretty sure they were from UCSD professors. Um, but there was a couple research, like a little bit of research into like bioremediation and sort of like removing heavy metals from soil using plants. Yeah. Um, and sort of the research that you were talking about, I thought it was pretty similar in the sense that like they wanted to use sunflowers to extract heavy metals um, yeah. out of the soil so that like farmers and, um, and other people in agriculture could like, uh, like they wouldn't get poisoned and stuff. Yeah, I have some colleagues that are working on engineering microbes like bacteria mm -hmm. to degrade plastic. You know, yeah. like the oceans are polluted with plastic. If we can create a bacterium that like eats plastic, yeah, <laughs> then we can remove all of it. That yeah. was actually what my science fair project was about last year, except it was using a specific type of fungi. No way. Cool. Yeah. yeah. Fungi are better at everything. They're also more difficult to grow and engineer. Yeah. They are super cool. Okay. Wait, what did you do? Um, we basically tested, there's a specific type of fungi it was actually two years ago. I don't remember it too well, but it, there was like evidence that it breaks down polyurethane. So then we basically grew it and we used polyurethane um, just like cubes. And then we saw the mass and there was like, 
um, legitimate results of uh, the polyurethane degrading. But the main question we had is, is this enough to actually like make a huge difference in the world's trash? Because even though it did degrade, it was not like in a huge amount. It was only very little. Yeah, yeah, that's, I mean, but the thing is like, if, if it does it at all, then we can always improve it, right? Yeah. The most important part is that we have like, we have an idea of how it can be done. Right? And then from there on, it's like, yeah, it's the hard work <laughs> like making it efficient enough and effective enough that it actually makes a difference in the world. Uh, and that's also necessary. I mean, we need to work on like all sides, like generate ideas and then making them work. As a scientist, you're, you're typically involved in like the first part, like coming up with new ideas and then showing that they can work. Mm -hmm. And then if we generate enough interest, you can recruit like funding or engineers or, you know, you do pilot projects or on a larger scale um, where, where you get more like technically minded people on board and people who like work on how to scale this up and make, to make it useful as a either a commercial product or you know uh, something that could be federally funded yeah i think that's really interesting um especially because um like a lot of us want to conduct research and so i think it's pretty cool that like we're able to get advice from you on sort of how to like approach this um but yeah thank you so much dr kosiri yeah no problem happy i could help and uh yeah let me know how it, how it goes yeah for sure. we'll thank send you, so you the much. episode when we upload mm -hmm. it yeah, it should be out sometime early next week. So, cool. Um, yeah. Who is the next you person so you're interviewing? Uh, we're actually interviewing your PhD student, uh, Miss Wacker. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, She's great. Yeah. Yeah. She... We listened to a bit of her podcast, and we thought it was pretty cool, yeah. especially because it's like three PhD students. Right. And right. So, yeah. Yeah. No, she she's she's done a lot of cool things. She's she worked mm. for NASA at some point. Oh yeah. yeah. I, so yeah, she's from Texas. Oh, or at least she she was in Texas for a bit. She was in I think so. she's I think she's originally from Florida, but mm. yeah, close enough. Um, <laughs> no, sorry, I'm not from that part of the world, so it probably isn't close. <laughs> um, yeah, if you want to, I'm happy to put you in touch with with other people that could be helpful. Yeah, we would really appreciate that. Years. Yeah, cool. If you could just like send them an email or something like that, that'd be really cool. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, let me think. Yeah, I know some people doing really cool stuff. Would you be, would you primarily be interested in like graduate students or postdocs or professors or any? Yeah. We're just like I think right now we're just focusing on like trying to cover like a variety of different topics so that like at least our listeners have a lot of things that they can like learn about. Yeah. Um, like we had Dr. DJ like as our for our first episode, and then we had a sociology professor for a second, and then now we have of course DNA origami. Um, so yeah, we're sort of just like testing out the waters. Okay, cool. Yeah, it's going to be a, a wide range of things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, good luck and stay in touch. Let me know if I can help in Thank any other so way. Thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Have a good day.